0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Connor, and we are joined today by Dr. Aaron McPhee, where we'll be discussing your edited volume, Excombatientes y Acuerdo de Paz en las FARC-EP en Colombia, Balance de la Etapa Temprana. We'll be conducting this interview in English, so basically the book is um, combatants of the FARC in in Colombia, and a look at the early stages of the process. Um, first and foremost, Aaron, welcome to the show. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to edit this volume?
1: Hi, Connor. Thanks for inviting me to the show. I'm quite happy to be there. Uh, my name is Aaron McPhee, and I'm currently the UKRI Future Leaders Fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. That's my primary role there, and I started building out a program about two years ago called Trust After Betrayal, and this program looks at the reintegration of formerly armed actors into civilian populations worldwide. So what I mean when I say formerly armed actors are any individuals who participated in the production of violence as a result of their membership to a group of some kind, so this can include military veterans, but often tends to refer to non-state armed actors such as former cartel members, ex-gang members, or former guerrillas from the FARC, for example, which is the population that I look at most in this book.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about your personal life and how you came to, st- to work in this area and then how that led to you creating this collection?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would always had an interest in armed conflict and military history ever since I was a little kid. I remember I was an only child uh, sort of running around in the backyard with a colander on my head pretending I was fighting in a battle or reporting on a particular battle and uh, spent a lot of my childhood sort of hanging out with my dad and and painting little model soldiers and arranging, you know, famous battle formations. So, you know, your typical young girl childhood uh, in Southern California. But I think through that, I, I really developed an interest in, yeah, the military and, and um, background in that. Um, actually sought out the military in my last year in high school, but turns out at the time, and I'm dating myself a little bit here, but it turns out at the time, the particular things that I had quite an interest in were not options for women. So I made the, again, completely obvious next step and and went to business school. Um, So after four years in business school, I I graduated in finance and uh, started working in real estate finance, spent some time in the private sector and decided that was absolutely not what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so started thinking about how I might better align what it was I was passionate about with the particular skills and capabilities and strengths that I thought I possessed. So fortunately, I was in Boston at the time, and that's a really great place to have no idea what you want to do because you've got so many universities there and so many tours to knock on and plenty of people to help you think through uh, what's possible. So After some encouraging conversations, it was recommended to me that I think about doing um, a doctoral program, which I'd actually never even considered. My only two criteria for my next step were I want to work in conflict zones and I want somebody to pay me to do it. Um, And so, yeah, so it was perfect and uh, ended up deciding to go into a doctoral program, but needed to sort of get up my academic chops before I did. So worked at a Harvard Business School for four years as a research associate and was very fortunate to have two incredible mentors during my time there who really guided me in you know laying the foundation for the next steps. Um, and in that time, I uh, read a ton of books about all of the conflicts that were going on all over the world. And after a few false starts, landed on Colombia and began traveling down there and 2010, after a couple of um, Spanish classes, it taught me how to ask where the library was and whether or not the mouse was on the table (laughs) and uh, had some hard lessons and good tutors uh, when I was in (laughs) Colombia.
0: Amazing. What was it about Colombia that made you kind of fall in love with the place and also continue working there to this day?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. First of all, it's just a beautiful country. Um, The landscapes are incredible. I've always been a lover of the mountains, and you could never tire of being in the mountains there if that's your thing. Uh, But really, first and foremost, the people. Uh, It was, so I was looking at Russia at first, um, and then a couple of countries on the African continent. And uh, just... Tapping into the networks, you know, I would sort of email the Colombian student or, you know, the student networks on different campuses and just immediately after writing to the Colombian student network um, at Harvard, where I was working at the time, I just had such an overwhelming response. And my first trip there, a woman I didn't even know who was a cousin of a person I barely knew, took four days off of work to show me around her department or her state, um, you know, shared with me everything that she knew about the country and connected me. And I was just always received with such open arms and such a willingness to host and again, help me with my Spanish, which required the patience of a saint at the time. And uh, yeah, I just always felt very welcome there by by bureaucrats as much as by the people living out in the rural communities very far from the urban centers of the country.
0: Awesome. So flash forward a little bit, we have this edited volume here. Um, how did this come to be? And what's the story that you're trying to tell here?
1: Yeah, so uh, at the time of the writing of this, I was actually working um, in IOM, the International Organization for Migration, uh, which is the UN Agency for Migration, and they were one of the key institutional partners in the implementation of the Peace Accord. So my dissertation field work had completed in 2016. Uh, And I spent 2016 through 2018 working with IOM specifically in their reintegration program. And my dissertation research had focused, and all of my work, as I said, focuses on these formerly armed actors. At the time, I was just sort of referring to them as ex-combatants, and they've been called many other names (laughs) in recent history. But I'll just call them ex-FARC or ex-combatants for this conversation. So... As I was working through uh, the reintegration implementation of the program, I sort of saw quite glaringly, especially coming off of my dissertation fieldwork, where I spent 15 months living in an informal housing settlement with ex-farc and um, former victims of the armed conflict, the glaring difference between sort of the pace and depth of academic research and what was actually practical and useful in the quote-unquote real world. Um, so, you know, I had worked in the private sector. I did have a sense of how organizations and institutions operate and the particular kind of bureaucratic constraints that they work under. Uh, I think IOM and any of these development agencies have a lot of complexities in that regard um, and some constraints and other powers, right, uh, as any organization does. But I really saw the the... The need for more robust research, but at a pace and in a form that was immediately relevant to policymakers and practitioners. So that was the thinking behind doing this book. Um, Angelica Rettberg, who is the co-editor of this book, had been one of the first academics actually I ever spoke to on my very first visit to Colombia in 2010. And so she was also sort of a guiding light in this process and mentored me through the through the process of, um, you know, leading uh, together with her a co-edited volume effort. So all of the content of this was, you know, the result of a call that looked for robust academicians, but who were also quite sort of tuned into this idea of making their work immediately relevant to policy and practitioner audiences, which is also why it's published in Spanish and not English as well, because we wanted to inform the people who were working on these issues in Colombia first.
0: I mean, that's amazing. I think it's it's critical that the people that are there on the ground living that 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 experience are the first to kind of understand what's happening. Um, and, and with that, would you be able to give us a little bit of historical context on the columbia that you're writing about and how it came to to be in a conflict and with the the war and all this
1: sure um, so the original Starting point of the armed conflict will differ depending on who you read, but there's a general agreement that it, you know, sort of really kicked off in 1948 with the assassination of Gaitan, who was a presidential candidate at the time. But it certainly roots uh, further back than that, and is really founded on the consistent marginalization of certain populations, often, you know, peasant rural populations from the core political center, often found in the urban centers um, of the country. And that's happened, uh, you know, since the early 20th century in the country. Um, and then that compounded with the sort of inflow of Marxist-Leninist ideologies resulted in um, the sort of means and guiding yeah, ideology to form it into a more coherent con- uh, conflict. So over the years, it's certainly the FARC has had various offshoots. So the FARC being the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia and um, since demobilized in 2016 with the peace accord. Um, They've had, you know, various instantiations and evolutions and offshoot groups and uh, have evolved over the years, you know, sort of with the introduction of the coca plant and the cocaine market, Um, you know, then came in other groups and right wing paramilitaries that had originally formed. Uh, When the government more or less told private landholders, you're on your own to defend yourself from the FARC, Um, they had formed sort of private militias that evolved into an 85,000 strong paramilitary group um, that was demobilized in 2003 through 2006. Um, and then these these groups over the years sort of fighting one another, fighting over the drug trade, um, and then increasingly fighting over access to natural resources. Now there's major problems with deforestation, illegal um, gold mining, and things like that. So illicit economies have always played a large... Well, not always, but since around the late 70s, illicit economies have continued to play a large role in the survival and the... Um, the reasons for the conflicts among these different groups and between the groups and the civilian populations, but it did begin as an ideological movement.
0: And what were the biggest challenges in coming to this moment of signing the peace accord, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, there have been peace processes of some form or another and with some group or another going on in Colombia since 1981 I think probably one of the largest impediments for maybe the people buying in to this peace accord uh, as a process when it first – I believe it first became public that negotiations were happening in 2014 – But they had been happening since 2012. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for the broader population is that there had been previously a significant negotiation between the FARC and the government of then President Pastrana where the FARC had basically demanded a very large swath of territory for them to gather and uh, regroup in order to participate in these peace negotiations But it had ultimately been more or less a farce, uh, and they just regrouped, restrengthened, and continued their armed uh, armed insurgency, depending on how you want to name it, but armed action in the country following. So there was a deep-seated distrust of the FARC in a negotiation process. Um, So that was certainly one of the challenges coming to the table. And then, though there was strong political will of the Santos government, obviously, there was also quite an outspoken opposition um, more on the right. And so that proved to be problematic for the eventual signing signing and ratification of the accord, though it did finally pass in November of 2016 after a, a no vote on the referendum a few months prior.
0: I've heard the narrative over the years that Bogota is removed in some way from what happens outside of the city in these rural areas with the FARC. Uh, would, you, would you say that is an accurate take on the situation in Colombia? And if so, how did that impact the peace process?
1: I would say that that's accurate with one uh, necessary addition, which is that the narrative of, and I'm quoting the work of Margarita Serge here, um, the narrative of the government or sorry, the governing center being in Bogota or Medellin or Cali, the governing center being in the urban areas has often been used in the Colombian context to justify certain kinds of military entry into the rural areas. So they will talk about sort of the wild and the savage and the frontier and the unsettled. And they'll use this language of sort of the civilized urban centers um, as a way to justify some kind of military action in the more rural areas. So I will say that it is, it is true. Yeah. (laughs) But I will also add that, um, our use of that language and our use of that discourse, um, should be deployed very carefully, uh, so that it's not, uh, reproducing this effect of sort of, um, militarization of the quote unquote periphery of the country. But, that qualification said, and again, that's the theoretical argument of Margarita Sergey and not my own, um, but that argument said, yes, certainly there's a very large disconnect, um, especially in policy making, between the, the rural areas and the governing centers. And so some of the challenges. So I came from Caquetá in 2016. I actually was brought into the UN mission because the deputy chief of mission literally found me in this uh, informal housing settlement and wanted to invite me to work with the mission because there was nobody else in the mission who actually understood what the everyday lives of ex-combatants and the people living in these communities are actually like. Um, so I, I can say that there is a lot of there's a few ways that the challenges happen. One is corruption. Uh corruption that runs from the center out into the rural areas so that by the time you have, you know, um some sort of legal or legislative initiative coming out of Bogota by the time any of the funding actually gets to the resident of an informal housing settlement way out in the far-flung you know, municipalities of Caquetá, it's, it's not quite the amount that was supposed to get there. And so there's because of corruption, there's a lot of siphoning off of desperately needed funds by, by um, traditionally marginalized populations. So they sort of continue to be uh, marginalized. So corruption is a major problem, and it just sort of amplifies, and uh, as you get out to the to the more removed areas, um, the other thing is a is a lack of understanding of the needs and priorities of the rural populations and a, and their consideration in policymaking in general. Now I will say, following the implementation of the peace accord or throughout the implementation of the peace accord, there have been very real. And substantive efforts to address this, but it is such a deeply ingrained problem that there's still quite quite a runway ahead um, in order to more comprehensively look at that. Uh, So those I think would be the two main things is just a lack of nuanced understanding of the everyday lives of the people that are supposed to be ostensible beneficiaries of programs and policies, and then corruption as a major factor in diluting uh, the funds that are intended for those populations.
0: Um, and to better understand the, the peace process, I want to dive a little bit more into who the FARC is on an individual level. And I know you have worked quite a lot with individual combatants or whatever the proper term would be for them. Um, could you give maybe perhaps an, an example of of who is in the FARC and what kind of life upbringing leads to, to someone joining the FARC?
1: Yeah, I'll give I'll give a few briefly and I'll do that because I really want to emphasize how the heterogeneous nature of these groups is really important to continue to bear in mind. And that's something that I think often gets lost in analysis and writing and policy making for these groups. Because you sort of you know it's it's necessary to flatten populations right in order to make a policy you can't have one policy for every person in the country but it's also really important to understand that there are such dramatic differences in who a member of an armed group is Um, that, uh, you know, programs and policies do need to factor in some of these differences. So, I mean, I think the first super obvious one is gender. Um, So the experiences of women in the FARC are are very different than those of men. Um, Now, there are experiences ranging from forced recruitment. Uh, So one of the tactics that had been used uh, in the past by the FARC was to host parties in small towns And then once all of the youth were at those parties, actually forcibly sequester, forcibly kidnap all of those youth at the party, bring them up into the mountains and then threaten them or do something that would uh, result in them deciding that their best bet option for them and their families was that they stayed in the group. So there's forcible recruitment for young women and young men um, there was also there were also women who went in because their romantic partners went in. Um, there were women who went in because they wanted to fight for the cause um, And so there's this wide range there were women that were born into the group even though there's this sort of I wouldn't quite call it a myth, but there was a very large spread practice of or policy of you know no, um, no pregnancies in the FARC, but there, there, there were certainly families that lived in the FARC. So, um, there were people who were born into the group as well. I'm thinking of one woman in the, in particular, who was a former FARC member, um, who she was part of a three generation family. Um, her father had originally FARC family. Her father had originally joined, um, because the state, had uh, harassed and taken away all of his papers and harassed him and chased him off his land in Antioquia. He was just a small sort of subsistence farmer there. And this was actually quite a common narrative for especially the older generation. I would say in that you know 40 plus range age range as of you know 2015 is that they joined the armed groups because some other armed group, be it the state or the paramilitaries, um, you know had committed some act, of aggression or homicide of a family member. And then they decided to join the oppositional armed group. Um, so there are those sort of motivations as well, but as well. But this young woman um, was born into the FARC, loved the FARC, had a very active role, um, shoulder to shoulder, fighting with uh, other people alongside her, then had her own child in the group. And then the whole family eventually decided to demobilize. But there were some of the values that she still held quite Closely, Especially those of community in her everyday life following the group. So there are gender differences. And then there's, you know, obviously there were, um, there were sexual assaults that occurred within the group as well, and uh, forced abortions, though, again, those experiences were mixed. Um, as far as the men, you know, there there were some similarities there. There were there were forcible recruitments. There were men who joined for the cause. Um, I know of one person in particular. I'm thinking of. He joined very much because he wanted to be a revolutionary. He was very active in politics in his university. And then the right-wing paramilitaries came to assassinate him for that reason. He decided to join the FARC. But then after a few years in the FARC, uh, there was a young boy that was in the group and he was shot in a firefight and died in this other man's arms. And after that, he became very disillusioned with the group and left, um, defected from the group at that time. And then others, um, you know, sort of just got bored and left. You know, there were, that's actually one of the main reasons many of the FARC had demobilized was just simply boredom Um, and that's leading up to the 2016 peace accord and then of course the peace accord marked a very large massive demobilization of over 10,000 FARC members Um, and the sort of FARC in that way dissolved though the
0: dissident remains. Hmm. And throughout the peace process I understand that the FARC uh, transitioned from being a combatant group to being a political party and a political movement, and you know politics, it was always a part of, of who they were, um, but what was the process like for them to transition to a full-fledged political party in Colombia rather than a militia, and um, how has that been going up until the modern times here?
1: Yeah, I think an important – so yeah, thanks for that question. I think an important um, historic piece whenever talking about the transition of the FARC EP, which is the – the EP part is the the army, right, the armed part. It's popular army um, from just FARC, and then they finally renamed it because they – came around on the fact that naming their political party after the same name as their uh, armed group was probably not super great marketing.
0: Um, Actually, so they, it's still the same though, right? still F-A-R-C. It's, um, yeah,
1: blank. but they, they changed the language of it. Um, but I think an important historic precedent that's uh, relevant is the, the, for, the previous formation of the UPE, the Unión Patriótica Party, um, that had been a similar process of an armed group Transitioning into a political group, it's very much akin to the IRA's transition to Sinn Féin, except that it was followed by a political genocide. And um, the members of the UPE were were killed almost down to the last man. So there was this sort of historic precedent that was very concerning for the FARC. Um, If they were to do the same, would they be persecuted and assassinated due to their affiliation to a subsequent political party? So a lot of conversations around that were happening during the peace process. Um, So there was quite a bit of trepidation in moving into this political realm. Uh, And there were some guarantees for representation in the first few years of the peace accord that were built into the peace accord um, that had ensured that they would have some form of participation in politics, um, actually, but just by political means and not by other means this time. So they sort of came around on on deciding to lay down their arms and try to participate in politics um, in nonviolent ways. It would seem from, you know, all intents and purposes or for all intents and purposes, the vast majority of them have decided to continue along that way. And I think both you and I know of someone in Kaketa who has really taken the opportunity of the demobilization to try to build up his own um, political career. So there are individuals out there who are trying to get local level positions and, and certainly rumors that I, I think are... You know, benign enough to repeat that uh, the group and the but but just rumors um, that the group has encouraged its former members to, you know, sort of take up these uh, low level local um, political positions in order to begin to have more of a presence in the national political space. Um, But unfortunately, there have been significant targeting. There's been significant targeting of former members and uh, very high levels of assassinations. Um, Hmm. It's not exactly known the extent to which those are purely politically related versus related to, let's say, conflict over access to or control over an illicit economy of some kind, Um, but it's likely a mix
0: of the two. Is this a win that... The FARC, the former FARC, is encouraging its former leaders to take up uh, political roles at the local level. Is this a win or is this a problem? You think? Kind of a loaded question.
1: No, I know that's a great that's a great interview question though. You know, (laughs) Um, I think um, I would say yes to the extent that that's um, and it's it's hard to use as a researcher. It's it's hard to use words like really or genuinely or authentically because you can never know the content of someone else's heart and mind. But um, I think to the extent that that is the the message, absolutely, I think that's a win. I think that um, you know the. Although Ireland is having its troubles now, um, actually, that was the wrong word to use, but having its challenges now, um, you know, I think part of the the longstanding positive outcomes um, resulting from the peace agreement there was the fact that Sinn Féin was able to gain a foothold in the political domain. So, again, that that sense of marginalization, that sense of lack of access to policymakers and the kinds of the decisions that affect um, your, you know, choose your own name population group that does get ameliorated if there's um, actually access and voice in the political domain. So yes, I do think that is a win. Um, I think my, my sort of hedging on that response are the dissident factions that are not encouraging um, their members to do that. But as much as they are being encouraged to participate in local political life, I think that that's absolutely a win.
0: Kind of in the same vein, I want to take a look briefly at uh, chapter 9 of your book. Uh, you helped to write chapter 9. It's Aprender a Ser en la Colombia del Post-Acuerdo, learning to be in the in the post-accord Colombia. And I will just read a brief excerpt from that. Um, McPhee, that's you. Visited seven of the transition zones during the first twelve months of the agreement's implementation in order to better understand how these groups, who were learning to live together in peace for the first time, built their daily lives under extraordinary conditions, and what and um what are the implications of their interactions for broader post-conflict processes, such as the national reconciliation and the long-term sustainable reincorporation of the FARC EP. Within the lim- the limits of legality, <clears throat> all that to say, what were your experiences going to these pl- pl- to these places? What was life like for people, cultures, fa- fa- uh, families that were in the FARC, um, coming out of it in the early st- stages, and how has this changed since then?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, this was a really fun chapter to write. Uh, I think the fieldwork leading up to it was incredibly rich uh, as well, and I was very lucky to have Kyle Johnson and Matteo Alarve as co-authors on, on this as well, uh, who were also quite active in the field Um, I guess I'll talk about this in sort of three parts. One, well, four. One would be the civilian population surrounding these transitional zones. Then the FARC uh, members who were there, the military who were part of the monitor, well, just sort of doing military work of establishing security. And then also as part of the tripartite monitoring and verification mission. And then as the third part of that tripartite mission, the, the UN... Uh, delegation that was there, who was at the time, they were military, although it turned to civilian UN um, representatives following the dismantling of these zones, or after the initial implementation of the disarmament and demobilization part of the peace accord. So in terms of the civilians, again, wide range of experiences. um, But there were some instances, for example, found especially by my co-author, Kyle Johnson, uh, where the civilians continued to Come to these transitional zones, which were sort of under lock and key, they were rings of security, they weren't to be accessed by outside populations. So these were contained um, transition zones, not just sort of a group of people living in the rural area somewhere. But um, the civilians who had so grown accustomed to the FARC as the governing mechanism in many of these territories would still approach the transitional zones to ask for the FARC to resolve quotidian conflicts. Um, There was an issue of one farmer taking another's cows and they came to the transitional zone to have the FARC resolve the conflict and the FARC had to tell them that, you know, we, we can't do that anymore. You have to find other sort of conflict resolution mechanisms. But I think, you know, although a small instance, it really illustrates that one of the major problems that followed the implementation of the peace accord and has been a significant contributing factor to the ongoing violence today, which is the power vacuum that was created by the dismantling of the FARC that was not filled by state security forces. Um, And that has created the conditions for the, all of the different factions and groups that we're seeing in the country today. Um, So those were sort of from the civilian side Um, there. I mean, also in the chapter, we talk a lot about perceptions that were reported in local newspapers. So concerns about actually the other armed groups that would be occupying the space that the FARC had left, um, a little bit of anxiety around you know who these FARC people would be once they re-entered into society, um, but, but oftentimes just sort of you know, continuing the lives that they were le- leading prior to the entrance of these transitional zones. Um, And then there's the international development space, so each of the transitional zones had a handful or a cohort of international development folks, some of them came from IOM, others came from um, other UN agencies who were responsible for monitoring and implementing the disarmament and demobilization aspects of the peace accord, Um, and then the army itself. I remember there were two things that really stood out for me in terms of the interviews that I conducted and the site visits that I conducted to bases and to these transitional zones with regards to the soldiers. Um, One is the the high-level commanders who would just sort of look at me with exasperation and say, you know, I've spent 30 years of my life looking at these people as the enemy, trying to eliminate them from the landscape of Colombia. And now I have to turn my back to them and protect them from other armed groups and and just change how I see them. And now we're just supposed to be coexisting together as equal Colombian citizens. And that's extremely difficult. It was extremely difficult for all of the senior leaders that I spoke with to make that sort of cognitive shift in um, how they viewed the FARC. And there was certain kickback from some military commanders, even during the peace accord that they had felt excluded from the negotiation process, uh, to begin with. And so, you know, there was definitely a lot of ambivalence in the military with regards to this whole peace process in general. Um, but as you know, as far as I know, the vast majority of them, you know, did, did do their jobs, um, in the more quotidian, lower ranks, everyday lives of these transitional zones, um, I did, you know, hear from a young woman who I think was a captain in the army, and she said that, you know, she'd really come around on the FARC members and her, her signal, her sign of, of, you know, I asked her sort of, well, when did you, when was a moment when you really realized that, you know, oh, these, these guys are just guys, you know, these women are just women and maybe they're not so different from me, they're also soldiers, you know, and she said uh, one day, one of them referred to her by her military rank. And she referred back to him by the military rank or the rank that he had had in the FARC. And so they each started calling each other, like, Captain, mi Capitan. And when they started referring to each other by their respective ranks, it was sort of what, you know, my analysis of this is that it was a recognition that, you know, you were also a military FARC members. And so, you know, we were there. There's a lot of acknowledgement that goes into that kind of recognition. And I think it sort of began to break down the barriers between the two populations. It's not to say that happened with everybody, but that's just one example of how sort of finding that common ground in identity and experience um, could be a way of breaking down what are some very understandably um, difficult barriers to get through when you go from enemy to, you know, just citizen or even somebody I'm supposed to protect.
0: Could you speak a little bit to the different forms of uh, reintegrating into Colombian society? My understanding is that with the Peace Accord, there was a formal system that was created for reintegration. But I also know that there are a lot of ex-FARC that did not use that system and just sort of have been going on their own path to reintegrate into society. Um, Who opts into which uh, program and why and um, how's that been doing in Colombia? Well, I'm going to
1: have to cite the research of Connor Christensen, 2022, <laughs> in order to answer that question. <laughs> um, so, so just as a quick background uh, for the listeners, the there have been, like I said, multiple waves of demobilizations in Colombia beginning, you know, in 1981. Um, more recently, especially with the contemporary FARC, like I, uh, I said previously, there was a very large demobilization of about 85,000 paramilitary members between 2003 and 2006. And that was sort of a, two waves of a lo- one larger process. Um, and then between 2006 and 2016, it was sort of on an ad hoc basis. So sometimes units would get demobilized by the government. They would get sort of captured, found, captured and demobilized by the government. There was ongoing low intensity conflict throughout this entire time. Um, and some of the worst years of the conflict were sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and so they would either be you know, sort of discrete units that had been captured and, by the government or it would just be on an ad hoc basis, an individual deciding to leave. For the paramilitary groups, um, the those that remained um, following the peace accord, it was a little bit more acceptable to the group to just sort of walk away. Um, you know, sometimes there would need to be arrangements made, but many of them were more urban centric um, and they were just a bit different in their operating nature. Whereas the FARC members had a plan pistola policy, which was um, if you left uh, you would be found and killed. Um, and sort of one example of how that played out. I spoke with a woman, this was quite a while back in 2012, probably. Uh, I spoke with her and she was in, this is why a lot of ex-combatants move to large cities because it's easier to hide, um, in these years. So she had, you know, defected from the FARC or deserted the FARC, uh, and then went back to, to her family in the coffee growing region and when she arrived to her house uh, just the day prior, apparently, the or, you know, a day or two prior, the FARC had found her husband there and left his very much dismembered body in a trash bag in front of her house for her to find. So those are the sorts of outcomes that people might anticipate if they were to try to leave the FARC. Um, many times, though, not always, as you found, actually, in your research this past summer. Um, but it was certainly a more dangerous proposition leading up to the peace accord. Uh, though there was the formal state institution, the Colombian Agency for Reintegration, renamed now after the Peace Accord, um, the Colombian Agency for Reincorporation and Normalization um, that the FARC were able to go through. And the average time for the reintegration process was actually seven years. Um, In many ways, the reintegration program leading up to the Peace Accord was absolutely incredible um, to provide that length of support And the extent of support to family integration, to education, to job placement, to psychosocial counseling is really unprecedented in the world. So although, you know, every program will have its flaws, um, there were some very strong uh, aspects to the Colombian reintegration program and very dedicated um, officials working in it as well. Um, the program was a bit different in the peace accord. So there was, it was a bit shorter in duration, and there were actually a lot of politics behind the forming of the initial national level council that was supposed to lead the program, which led to a delay in the launching of the program and, and sort of diluted the maybe early phase impacts that it might've been able to have. Um, but you know, in the aggregate historically, um, Colombia has had a a very strong reintegration program.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong, the the Peace Accord was signed in 2016, right? So we are seven years out from when it happened. Um, There's been a bit of a shift in Colombian politics this last year. We have a new president. Um, He is on the left, which is sort of a new thing for Colombia. Does conflict still exist in Colombia? Has the peace accord been working? And how has this shift in the political landscape uh, changed the dynamics on the ground?
1: Conflict definitely still exists in Colombia, yes. Um, So... There was a significant setback in the implementation of the peace accord during President Duque's administration. His four-year administration, um, there was a notable decline in the political will behind uh, many of the initiatives that had that were both highly complicated and ambitious to begin with, um, and then you know very problematic to implement without sort of 150% political will from the leadership. So, I mean, there have been major gains, (coughs) excuse me, Um, especially the Truth Commission report that recently came out. So there have been significant gains. There were many of the original elements of the peace accord that were intended to support FARC reintegration were put into place. Um, there was some early attrition due to the length of time that it took to actually set up the transitional zones, and then certainly, um, some attrition over the subsequent years as a result of dissatisfaction with the reincorporation it's now called reincorporation um program. But I think for the most part, um, there has been sufficient backing of many elements of the reintegration program i think the biggest shortcoming has been the provision of security for ex-combatants um, because they are still so vulnerable to um yeah assassinations and and violence against them um, the groups that are currently at play i mean there's there's obviously the FARC dissident factions, um, you know, sort of the long standing armed groups that have had a long history in the in the country. There are um, pure sort of more pure illicit economy groups that have to do with cocaine production. Um, you know, there has been, I think, as you and I both found in Kaketa, um, an increase in the presence of the Sinaloa cartel, at least in that region, beginning in 2012, but really becoming more acute in recent years. Um, and as you found, uh, there are communities that have been sort of partially served by the coca crop substitution program that sort of got rid of their coca plants, but then never got the pl- the substitution plants they were supposed to receive from the government and who are now literally starving and unable to sustain themselves and would actually welcome the cartels with open arms, if it meant that they would be able to make a living for themselves. Um, I mentioned before that there's been a massive increase in deforestation, so there's actually been quite a lot of environmental damage that has occurred in the years following the signing of the accord, because in many swaths of the country, the FARC had actually been the ones who were governing land use and extraction activities. Um, And then competition, for example, over um, illegal mining sites as well among various armed groups has been problematic as well. So there is still conflict in Colombia. Um, How you want to name it probably depends on where you're sitting and looking at the armed conflict. But um, yeah, the peace is is still not there.
0: What does your work look like now in Colombia? Um, What needs to be done by, 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 by Colombia itself and by the international community to help out, you think?
1: Yeah, one thing that has been quite a strong facet of the peace building process in Colombia, well, I, I guess I can speak more specifically just to or more in depth to the reintegration process itself, is that the Colombian government has always had quite a lot of skin in the game. So whereas I've seen in other countries, um, there are some governments that just simply won't sign a page unless they've got extra funding to do it from some external source. The Colombian government has been quite invested um, in the development of the structures and the institutions that it needs to reintegrate these individuals back into society. So um, so that's one thing that's, I think, quite a strength um, in Colombia right now I'm looking at how to think through a bit more um, the reconstruction of the social fabric, um, beginning with the experiences of the individuals who previously participated in armed groups of any kind who might currently experience um, challenges or stigmas associated to that past membership that are impeding their ability to achieve the path that they want to in their lives. Um, And so there's Quite a lot of discourses around, you know, sort of mistrust, and and it's sort of, you know, the a lot of there's quite a social world around how it's valued to be distrusting. So there's phrases like "don't dar papaya," "don't give papaya," which really just means don't make yourself vulnerable. And and there's a lot of sort of, you know, if, if something happens to you, the questions come up of well, where were you or what time was it? And there's quite like a lot of rigid norms around self-protection and security and trust versus mistrust. And I think part in my work, what I what I'm looking at is how that affects things like rebuilding interpersonal relationships after experiences with armed conflict, which is obviously going to create different kinds of very profound obstacles to trust building. But My argument is that because trust is a foundation of all social life, um, sort of until we sort this out, at least a bit more, um, the more sustainable programmatic and policy elements will never take root in in any kind of substantive way.
0: Well, before I let you go, um, building on what what, what you just said, what is your work right now in the world? What are you working on and what's coming next? from you
1: great so i will plug right now um if anyone wants to take a look at the project it's at trustafterbetrayal.org and i do have some highlights of different projects going on right now so um in somalia i have been working on the topic of the defection and reintegration of former members of al-shabaab Um, In Libya and Sudan, I've just finished up a project on the climate change, conflict and migration nexus. I'll be continuing in Sudan, um, looking in particular how it's possible to use environmental sustainability and community resilience practices as an opportunity to raise the profile of women and young people in the community decision-making levels in United States, I'm working on two projects. One is with uh, US military veterans who are involved in the criminal justice system. So both looking at job readiness training, uh, reintegration services, and also supports in the justice system itself. And then I'm doing a project uh, with you on former members of the Afghan special operations community who were largely in Afghanistan through the US withdrawal. Um, in Mexico, I've worked on a project that is an intergenerational social cohesion building through the lens of environmental practices. Um, I'll be starting a second site for that project this summer, as well as with a drug rehabilitation center um, for men, many of whom had prior affiliations or activities with the cartels. Um, in El Salvador. I'm almost done in El Salvador. <laughs> I'm, uh, I have been collaborating with the, an NGO that works with incarcerated youth who are members of the Mara Salvatrucha down there. And then finally in Colombia, continuing to work on um, interpersonal trust, a topic of trust building and integration of former members of the FARC there, or other armed groups as well. So that's it.
0: I think it's safe to say you have achieved your childhood dream of working in conflict areas. And I think more importantly, you're also doing a lot of awesome work to push the needle towards peace in the world. So Aaron, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for taking the time to talk and uh, yeah, love talking to you.
1: Thanks. It was a pleasure.